Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I guess the, the point of this whole thing is if you've got a good case, you can get a good verdict anywhere because people want to do the right thing. You just have to show them what it is and show them how to do it. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. We were just talking about how it's it's holiday party season combined with end of the year case craziness season. So I'm a little sleepy, but uh, I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. Well, we and and not only have we been spending the last uh, few days with uh, trial lawyers from all over Georgia and in our our own firm party, but uh, all three of our guests that we have on today, we got to uh, see them over the past few days at some of the holiday parties. So uh, I want to go ahead and welcome uh, our three great trial lawyers, uh, Bill Stone, Ryle Stone, and James Stone. Uh, if you haven't guessed, uh, they're related. Uh, Bill is the dad and Riles and James are the son. So uh, how are you guys doing today? Great. I'm great. Thanks for having us. I'm great, Steve. Thanks. Well, and I hope everybody is uh, is recovered after the uh, after the past few days of going to a lot of uh, Christmas parties and things like that. I know Yvonne is is on the mend. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. I've still got a lot of hydrating to do, but <laughs> it's it's not about me. I have, <laughs> my, I have my two bottles of water. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. See, that's a pro. That's a pro right there. <laughs> that's right. That, yes, that's it. That is the seasoned trial lawyer. There, yeah. Uh, show, showing his sons how it's done. I saw, yep. a, I saw a commercial this, this morning on television about uh, Captain Morgan's rum, and it, it says, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> we thought well, we let everybody off easy this year by not uh, by holding off on our uh firm holiday party uh this year one last time due to covid one of one of the best holiday parties out there <laughs> yes yes one we look forward to every year well we we look forward to doing it next year but uh, covid's gonna have to cooperate yeah yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely so i don't want uh, to hear somebody coming and having a great time and then get sick and passing away <laughs> right, yeah. right 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 <laughs> that's right well, uh, let me let me take a little time to introduce the three of you so everybody can know uh, know who we're talking to. But as I already said, we um, we uh, have Bill Stone, Ryle Stone and James Stone, all uh, uh, members and partners at Stone Law Group Trial Lawyers. Uh, they have offices in Blakely, Atlanta and Rome, Georgia. And um, we're going to be talking to them about just a, uh, 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 as many times we do on this show, a uh, tremendously sad case, but really great legal work in, uh, in representing this family for the loss of their son. But, um, but Bill, I'll start with you. Um, anybody in the Southeast, especially, and in Georgia, knows who Bill Stone is. He's one of the great trial lawyers, has been on the show before, uh, and has had just a number of great verdicts. And uh, I, I could go through all of the awards and things that he's uh, he's gotten, like the Traditions of Excellence Award from the State Bar of Georgia, uh, many times super lawyer. Uh, one thing I didn't know about you, Bill, and this is what I, uh, you know, I was just looking at your CV. You went to the Nether- Netherlands Institute of Economics. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so you're going to do a, talk to us about uh, Dutch economics, right? 
No, international economics. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Actually, the school was founded after World War II uh, to teach a new generation of Dutch businessmen that conducted business all over the globe because they were a trading nation and they would get back into the trading business and they needed to study international economics. So uh, uh, that's I just went on a lark more than anything else. I was an accounting major in college. That was kind of a boring thing. And I had a good friend that went over there and uh, um, he had such great time. He taught me and going the next year. So I yeah. did. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I can understand. It sounds like a great place to go, uh, to go to school for a little bit. Um, but yeah, so we're so glad to have Bill on the show again. And, uh, and we're going to be hearing about this, this case where, uh, where he and Riles and James just did a fantastic job and we get to have on for the first time, Riles Stone, who is a, I, so I just realized this after I was reading, so I so Bill, I knew that your father was a was a judge uh, down in uh, in Blakely. I did not realize that Riles and James are fifth fifth generation lawyers. Yes. Um, yeah, and the and that the firm, the Stone Law Firm, essentially goes back to 1915. Is that right? True. Wow. Well, I did not know that. But uh, but Riles is a, a fantastic lawyer. He works out of the Rome office. Uh, is a UGA grad, went to Cumberland School of Law, and when he was in uh, law school, uh, was the Abraham J. Carruthers Fellow, uh, which was the mentor for the first-year research and writing program. And uh, and I noticed that uh, that both Riles and James, and we we've never really talked about this on the show before, uh, but they're uh, uh, graduates of the GTLA Georgia Trial Lawyers Lead Program, which is a great program that GTLA puts together. And actually, James, Riles, and Yvonne are all graduates from that program. And uh, and I know I see Yvonne raising her hand. I, I was just going to say that Bill and I are, are not uh, graduates. From that program. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say that James and I are graduates, but Riles really got that thing going. He he started. Riles that is legacy. actually yeah. I'm I'm actually not a graduate. I'm, oh, <laughs> they let me uh, merits be honorary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, we got we got it going in 2013, I believe, and. Um, uh, Jeb Butler and I, uh, he, he threw out there to me one time. He said, you know, this looks like this just turned into a pretty fun program. Why don't we apply? And I, and I said, there's no way I'm applying for a program that we, that we started. We're going to get rejected from a, from a <laughs> program that we started. Uh, it's gotten so competitive and so, uh, so hard to get in. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's going, going really, really well. And, uh, the, the caliber of attorneys like Yvonne and James and so many others, we were up to about 150 statewide uh, that have gone through that program. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you just had your um, sort of alumni or your uh, reunion type uh, program down here in Savannah and got everybody together for that. So that's really great. Yeah. What's really it's great. First, what, first alumni uh, retreat. I think everyone, Yvonne can, can attest. I think everyone, had such a good time at their own class retreat that we all just uh, wanted to do it again. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was that was my only prerequisite to to being a chair uh, of, of the lead program was that I got to I got an invite to to each uh, <laughs> uh, class retreat every year. <laughs> right. Right. That's the that's the fun part. Bill, what were you going to say? I was going to say the, the real good part about it is it's gotten so many young people to become involved in Georgia trial lawyers and uh, uh, I mean, really actively involved in with the program. So uh, yeah. 
I, I think the future of Georgia trial lawyers is very bright because of this program. And uh, 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 I'm just glad it got started and glad it's taken root so well. Yeah, Steve, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that not only were the three of us, me, Riles, and Yvonne, in the lead program at some point. Yvonne was actually my coach. Yeah, I lead one yes. of my lead coaches. So, uh, it's, and Riles was one deeper. of mine. And yeah. Riles was one of mine. It just, so it just, a, it just keeps people helping people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I, I did want to tell one story about Riles, which he doesn't know. But uh, and this oh, no. is sorry, sorry to bring uh, up bad news, but uh, or or bad memories. But I was at the uh, SEC championship a couple of weeks ago, and I was sitting uh, about ten to fifteen rows behind Riles. And uh, and I could see him sitting there uh, standing up and he was talking to the field like he was Kirby smart. I mean, he, 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 they had just listened to Riles. I know that game would have gone differently. Uh, I had my headset on. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> the only one on that channel, apparently. I was sitting there next to Judge Batten. And uh, so we're both okay. talking about it, about how, how bad things are going. But I was like, I was like, but Riles has got it. He, if we just listen to Riles, I know we're going <laughs> to um, well, and, 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 and finally, let me talk about James a little bit. James is one of the newest members of the Stone Law Group, uh, graduate from UGA and then John Marshall Law School. Uh, another fantastic lawyer, uh, barred in both Alabama and Georgia. Uh, as I already said, a graduate of the LEAD program. And, uh, and I saw that he enjoys uh, mountain biking, running, softball, and coaching Little League Baseball. Uh, and as you can tell from where he's doing his... Uh, his um, uh, interview that he's uh, he, he's definitely got a few uh, what, what do we call those demonstrative aids for kids or just toys <laughs> back he's got the chalkboard yeah. there I can oh. see it the, the little work, workbench yeah. <laughs> I was telling Steve before we got on the call I've got a monster train set set up over here um, <laughs> that uh, if you step on it you know it um, but yeah it's it's it, uh, the the coaching little league has transitioned into raising a two-year-old. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm now trying to get him to, to pick up the baseball thing. He got, he's got the hand grip backwards, like uh, Hank Aaron right. style. So I'm right trying here. to, I'm trying to convince him to hit left-handed, but we're, it's a slow, <laughs> slow process right now. He's raising a couple of, uh, uh biomechanical engineer experts right. for <laughs> future use. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, very good. And, and I should, uh, mention if you want to look up Bill, uh, Riles or James, you can go to stonelaw.com. So that's S-T-O-N-E law.com. So, uh, so guys, uh, let's talk about this case that you tried back in November of this year, October and November of this year, uh, down in Early County, uh, county you, each of you are familiar with, grew up there, uh, uh, Bill has practiced there for a long time. Um, so uh, this is just a, um, it, it, I, I was thinking about that as I was reading, as I was reading the facts, uh, how tragic this case is. And obviously a lot of this, the cases that we have uh, on here are, are very tragic, but um, this involves the death of, uh, of Price Thornell. Um, he is the son of Michael and Molly Thornell. And the case was Michael and Molly Thornell versus uh, Stephanie Charlotte Clausen. It was tried in November of 2021 in Early County. Uh, and basically Price was driving on uh, March 29, 2013, from uh, 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 Oxford, Mississippi. He was uh, in school at University of Mississippi, going towards his home in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, he it was March 29, 2013. He was going there to for both Easter weekend uh, and to surprise his dad for his dad's birthday. Uh, and um, it was on Highway 84. 
He is involved in a uh, collision with Ms. Clausen, who uh, was DUI uh, and who pled guilty to DUI. Uh, I think it was 0.13, that was taken three hours after the collision uh, and, um, and was tragically killed in that uh, collision. Um, and I'm going to let uh, Bill Riles and, and James talk about this more, but it, initially because of the way the, the collision happened and then the fact that there was a tractor trailer that went through and struck Miss Clausen's car, uh, the vehicles were pointed in a direction that made the, um, the state troopers uh, assume that, um, that um, this, I should have mentioned this is a divided highway, but assume that, um, that Price was driving on the wrong side of the road and had a frontal impact with Miss Clausen and it took just uh, tremendous legal work. I was I talked to Bill over the weekend about this uh, to figure it out, to figure out that 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 this was not Price's fault, that he was on the right side of the road, and that Miss Clausen was driving on the wrong side of the road. But um, so I, I was thinking about this from the the parents' standpoint. One is that you know they they are uh, woken and told that their 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 child is dead, um, and that and I should have mentioned this happened at about two a.m. He had left about 8.30 p.m. Uh, on, a, I think it was a Thursday night, to uh, drive home and be there for the morning. Um, and so this happened about 2 a.m. So they were woken, told that their son had been killed, told that it was his fault. And then I was thinking about from the dad's perspective, if I mean, if this was a surprise, he, I'm, I'm sure his first thought is, I don't know what you're talking about because my son is in Mississippi, not in Georgia. Um, but, um, but just... Uh, just terrible facts. Um, I think I hit all the high points of it. I'll, I'll, I'll let everybody know what the, the verdict was. Uh, the verdict was $26,141,628 uh, for, um, for the family and for uh, the value of the life of, uh, of Price Thornell and um, just tremendous work. And, and one of the things that we'll talk a lot about is the, is the amount of work that went into proving up the damages, proving up the value of the life price in this case. But I guess where I first want to start guys is, is this, do you want to, you want to give any more meat to that story about that, that why they thought that, that Price was driving on the wrong side of the road and what, and why he, um, why he was initially blamed for it, and then how you, uh, through just excellent legal work and investigative work, uncovered it and figured it out. Well, since I was the one working it to begin with, I'll, I'll go ahead and start on that. Uh, I realized they got it backwards the day after the accident when I went to the impound yard with uh, Dr. Charles Benedict, uh, an accident reconstruction and otherwise a great engineer from uh, Tallahassee, Florida, who knew the family, and he called me because he knew it was in my backyard. And so we went to the Early County Sheriff's Department and looked at the vehicles, and you could tell from damage patterns on the vehicles that this had been a frontal offset, uh, right side, headlight, headlight uh, uh, collision. And there's only one way the vehicles could rotate, and that is around the pivot point to the right. It was a clockwise rotation. Uh, the trooper wrote it up in his report that the rotation of the vehicles was counterclockwise. And so he has them going the wrong way to start with because he thinks from, now I think he just jumped to a conclusion since he got to the accident about, an accident site about an hour, 10 minutes, hour, 20 minutes after the wreck happened. 
because he had to come for about an hour from Bainbridge, Georgia, to he was home in bed asleep when he got the call. And he, he gets there and he sees Price Thornall's vehicle pointed northwest in the median, grassy median between the, the two sets of lanes. And he sees Miss Clawson's vehicle uh, east of Price's vehicle pointing uh, pretty much dead east in the eastbound lane of travel, inside eastbound lane of travel, which is where the collision occurred, okay? So he just decides that they just hit each other and just kind of went through and, and went their separate ways, and that's the way they wound up. And, uh, but then the odd thing was that he, he uh, actually did write things up about her rotating into the path of the tractor trailer truck and getting struck by the tractor trailer truck. So it's just odd to me that he didn't realize that that's what put her back in the inside eastbound lane facing east. And he didn't account for that at all. He just, his, his testimony in his deposition was she just rotated right back into the same position that she came from before, uh, she moved over into the truck's lane, which was kind of ridiculous since she was 40 feet east of where the area of impact occurred, uh, according to him, you know, so, so he, like, a th- right. like a 360 degree spin is what he was saying she had done. And it was just... more than that. She, okay. you know, she, she did a 90 degree, uh, into him and then a two, a 270 back the other way. Right. So it was a total of, uh, 360, I guess, to, to complete the circle, but uh, uh, she was actually driving uh, west in the inside eastbound lane when she struck Price Thornall's vehicle, and that, that's the only way she could have ended up in front of the truck, because if it had happened the way uh, Trooper Kirkus says it happened, then Price Thornall's vehicle would have been in front of the truck, and she'd have been in the media. And, and and so he was focusing on nothing but where the vehicles wound up at point of rest and an accident reconstruction should focus on, you know, how did they get there? Right. You know, not where they ultimately got, but how did they get there? So he didn't know anything about that, though, because when we deposed him, he he had never taken any accident reconstruction courses except levels one and two, which every trooper has to take. But they are critical speeds and and things like that and, and looking at tire marks and and uh tail lights and, and thing things of that nature they don't teach you very much in those courses and uh, uh so i'll i'll get on how we work with worked on that in a minute but uh we began with the idea that this was going to be an uninsured motorist case because miss clausen only had twenty five thousand dollars coverage and the Thornalls had $400,000 of stacked UM coverage under a Florida policy that was issued to them in Tallahassee covering Florida vehicles to Florida residents, okay? And the only connection it had with Georgia was uh, the fortuity that uh, it had been in Georgia for about 30 seconds at the time the accident occurred because mm-hmm. really it could just as easily happen in Alabama uh, because it's just – 30 seconds inside the Georgia line when it happened. And that just happens to be where, you know, the, the territorial divide is. So, uh, so we went ahead and served the summons on USAA, the Thornall's carrier. And rather than just uh, pay the UM claim, which is what we were trying to get them to do, because 
uh, the boy was driving with a GPS and uh, he'd been driving for five and a half hours east, southeast from Oxford, Mississippi to the place where the accident happened. And he doesn't get an inch further from where the accident happened. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. If he's driving west, he has to get past the accident site, turn around and go back. And his GPS surely would have recorded that if that had happened, but it didn't. So, um yeah, I'm going to let James talk to you about the, the GPS and cell phone evidence in a minute because he that was basically his assignment was to take that expert and uh, go through all that stuff and, and use it to show that we were not driving in the wrong direction uh, because we had essentially three ways to show that. First, the purpose of the trip was to come home to see his father for his birthday a surprise visit, and also Easter weekend to spend that with his family. And so he has to be driving southeast to do that. Uh, The second thing was his GPS uh, was uh, tracking in that direction the whole time. And the third thing was the roadway evidence, and the evidence on the vehicles suggested that there was no other way for the wreck to happen other than uh, him driving east and her driving west. And he couldn't have made it happen uh, any other way. So uh, we had to come up with a way to undo what the state troopers were doing because Kirkus, the state trooper, got the uh, SCRT or SCRT team, Special Collision Reconstruction team, to come out after he talked with me and Dr. Benedict at the impound yard. He got them, he met with them the next day and got them to come out and uh, uh, talk to some witnesses or people that claim to be witnesses. They weren't much witnesses, but they uh, at least claimed to be. And he got them to uh, 
uh, he, he, they went out and mapped the uh, scene with the total station system. Uh, but all they mapped was the location of the vehicles at rest. They didn't do any CAD work or anything to uh, try to reconstruct the accident. And that ultimately was the way we got them excluded on the Daubert uh, motion because the, the trooper, the skirt troopers had uh, at least gone to reconstruction school. They, they should have known something about it, although they didn't appear to know very much. Uh, right. The field trooper, Trooper Kirkus, uh, he didn't know much of anything at all. So uh, he, he really admitted he wasn't qualified to reconstruct the accident, so the judge didn't have any trouble excluding him. But that's kind of the way it worked, and the case lasted a long time before it got to trial for quite a number of reasons, and I guess we'll get into those. But the, the real key pre-trial stuff was to uh, demonstrate that the people who were writing the reports for the Department of Public Safety either didn't know what they were doing or were not doing what they knew they should have been doing and came to the wrong conclusion. And it just wasn't scientifically accurate and it, it, it didn't pass the Daubert muster. And so the judge excluded it all. And ultimately they changed their opinions and filed supplemental reports saying it happened exactly like we said it happened. And the defense then filed motions to exclude them on Daubert grounds because <laughs> they adopted our, Daub our Daubert motion. They didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know what they knew to do. So right. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. We, we did not disagree with that because that took any error out of the exclusion of their testimony for either side. So that, was, that made it a clean trial at that point. After it got, became a clean trial, it was just uh, pretty straightforward. And that's kind of what we did. It just took a long time to get it done. And like I said, we'll talk about that in a minute, I guess, for what reason. Well, and I'll, add, I'll I mean, add one thing about before we move on, Steve, is, you know, that was really the reason the U.M. wasn't coming around was because of what the law enforcement reports had said. And that was what they were hanging on to. And which ultimately, since it didn't come in, was kind of it's kind of interesting fact moving forward. But um, that was the real reason they you know, they had seen these reports and said, our insured was was responsible for causing it, so we're not going to pay out on it. But they were writing. Uh, let me let me just speak to that just a minute because the state troopers did not take possession of the GPS and they did not download it or anything. We got that about a month after the accident happened when it was uh, retrieved from the Copart uh, salvage yard down south of Tallahassee, Florida, and um, we had the data downloaded and printed out in Excel format. And we also had it uh, uh, plotted on Google Maps. And we sent all that to USAA and to Ms. Clausen's lawyer and it showed them that the, the electronics, at least that were on board our vehicle, showed that we were traveling in the correct direction and she had to be traveling in the incorrect direction because you cannot have a, a head-on collision unless one of the cars is traveling in the wrong direction and it wasn't us. Right. Uh, they USAA took totally inconsistent positions. They denied our UM claim, but they also denied the claim of Miss Clausen of, of uh, Williams Brothers Trucking Company or of Eastern Insurance Company, the uh, workers' comp uh, uh, MedPay uh, subrogation company, and a guy named Tony Duggan who was the driver of the tractor trailer truck that was involved in the wreck. They wrote a number of letters just outlining the fact that Ms. Clausen was drunk driving on the wrong side or in the wrong lanes of the road, and it was her fault, and they weren't going to pay anything. And so 
basically they just made up their mind they were going to take both sides of the I'm not going to pay anything issue and right. heads I win, tails you lose. Right. And to us, that's bad faith because one of those positions is just simply not true and any reasonably honest person would know that. You know, mm-hmm. so the question is, how do you decide which one it is? Mm-hmm. So they appeared in their own name to begin with, making themselves a defendant in the case, uh, defending the uninsured motorist and alleging that it was not her fault. It was solely Price Thornall's fault for driving the wrong way on a, on a divided highway. And so that kind of set the stage for where we're going next. And that's the, the, the Florida bad faith claim against USAA uh, for failure to pay the $400,000 uh, that they should have paid under the UM coverage. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And one thing we should mention to our listeners who don't know is that in Georgia, if there's uh, uninsured motorist coverage uh, and there's a claim there, then the insurance company can choose to defend the case either in the name of the driver, the, the defendant driver or in themselves. And at least initially in this case, uh, it was defending in their in the insurance company's name. Uh, not in the driver's name. I understand at some point that tried to change. But um, I did want to ask, though, um, was it also it, it? I take it from the reading the openings and closings that it seemed like the fact witnesses or the eyewitnesses. And I think there's maybe only two of them uh, were also I, I don't know if I can say completely adverse to your side or what were they what were they saying? The uh, this is the truck driver and then somebody I think who saw it in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they saw, both of them saw completely different accidents. They were adverse to each other. They were adverse right. to us and adverse to each other at the same time. Uh, but, you know, that, that all worked out when, when their depositions were taken. They, it was pretty clear that they really didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, Ms. Alexander, the one that saw it in her rearview mirror, admitted that she didn't know what to make and model of her vehicle coming the wrong way towards her. She was the lead car in the whole parade and she was in front of the tractor trailer truck and in front of Miss Clawson. And so she was in the outside lane and a car passed her going the wrong way or a vehicle. Oh my God. And so she could not say what kind of vehicle it was until she turned around and went back to the point of rest of the vehicles and saw the the Thornall Honda pointing Northwest. And she just jumped, to conclusions that that must have been the direction he was traveling in the first place. So that must have been him that she saw. And she really didn't know what she saw. But uh, they their testimony conflicted badly with each other. And so that that helped a lot. And uh, uh, yeah, the story. I, James also uh, did, did a lot to uh, cut into her credibility. James, you want to tell the ESPN story? Yeah, so in her deposition and in statements that Ms. Ms. Alexander, who was the lead car, she had said that she was over in Dothan that night, earlier that evening, watching the Miami Heat play basketball in the the NBA playoffs, which seems on its face a pretty benign comment when you just look at it in black and white. And when you look at the date of this case, it was 2013. I was still in law school when this case, when this happened. So I wasn't involved in anything in the run up to it until about 2017. Uh, and so I start going through the file, start looking through some of the things and I see that, uh, she made these statements. So I'm like, okay, well, that's a pretty early time for the NBA playoffs to start. Let's just kind of check that and make sure we're, make sure she's clear on that and just kind of see what's going on, who they play and what's going on. Just kind of get the bearings about me. 
And I look it up and I, I just went to the, the Google machine, right? And NBA <laughs> 2013 NBA playoffs. And what pops up is they don't start till April 21st, 2013. So I'm kind of thinking to myself, all right, well, maybe she watched a different game. Let's just kind of do a little more digging. And she said heat, very specific. So we go and look up the Miami Heat basketball schedule for the 2013 season and pull up the month of March. And I'll be darned if there's no basketball game on March 28th, 2013, which is the evening leading up to it. Right. There's one on the 27th and one on the 29th. So it's kind of, okay, well, why are we doubling and tripling down on this concept? What's going on here? Uh, So we just pocketed that and and didn't bring it up until cross at trial. But it was one of those things where it's kind of the last thing we left the jury with was this woman, but our whole theme with her was she saw an accident that couldn't happen because the manner in which she testified, the sequence of, of the collision just didn't check out with the facts. So the thing we left her with, left the jury with was they, uh, that she also saw a game that never happened. Right. <laughs> probably March Madness that she was watching. When you go back and look at the time of when this stuff was going on, but it was just something that, it, it, again, when you double, triple down on a such a very specific set of facts like that, you kind of have to bring that out on them to to make a to make your point with them. Uh, yeah, the real thing that that hurt her testimony was uh, she was an attractive lady uh, uh, and tall and thin and uh, uh, dressed very. I don't know, I would say kind of inappropriately to the courthouse, but it was not, you know, some kind wow. of sleazy dress. It was a nice dress. It just was a little bit much for the courthouse. And, you know, the ladies on the jury, I don't think, liked her very much to start yeah. with. And, but she was very sure of herself, and she wanted to be the prima donna that it was the super sleuth that figured out everything about how this thing happened. And she was so opinionated and uh, um, just knew it all, but all of her testimony just started falling apart. She's she's eyewitnessing ball games that don't get played, and she's eyewitnessing things that didn't happen in the wreck. Like she testified that the truck and the Durango Miss Clawson were driving never collided with each other, but they did. I mean, collision damage on both both vehicles to show right. where they collided. Mm-hmm. That's the only way she got back into the uh, uh, eastbound lane was that collision, and even the, even the trooper. Uh, said that you know so she just was she was not in sync with anybody and the truck driver he wasn't in sync with with her because he testified that he uh that the Clawson vehicle he was about uh half a car length behind the Clawson vehicle when the wreck occurred and he was driving 63 miles an hour which is about 93 feet a second and the Honda is a, I mean, not the Honda, the, the uh, uh, SUV is uh, 16 feet long. And he says he's half a car length behind that. Well, that's eight feet, you know, and he's driving 93 right. feet a second. And he says the thing stood up on its nose and uh, fell over the top of his hood and his windshield. So, you know, he was asked about, do you know how much it weighed? And he said, no, and I gave him the, uh, the spec sheet on the vehicle and it says it weighs 6,000 pounds. So then he, he, his aerial shot of his hood and his windshield taken by the accident reconstructionist Jeff Kidd shows there's not a scratch or a dent on his, on his hood and there's not a crack on his windshield. I mean, no damage at all to, 
the part of his vehicle that he swears that it hit. And where the damage is located is at the front uh, left fender and front left bumper. And that's about four feet below the top of his hood. You know, so, um, I mean, he just had it all mixed up about how it happened. Yeah. But then he says <clears throat> that the black marks on the road that followed the track of his vehicle into the median were not made by his vehicle. Because nothing else that could have made those black marks is perfect. Uh, just lines drawn to where his vehicle wound up. And then he says that his vehicle did not uh, uh, come to rest in the inside uh, westbound lane. And overall, way across the median, he said he never made it through the median. But there's a big pile of dirt and other debris over there. It was taken by by Jeff's uh, crew the next morning. And in addition, there was uh, uh, engine fluid and all deposited on the highway over there. And then there was painting where the trooper had marked the front wheels of the truck, almost touching the yellow line. And to cap it off, we had the dash camera from the trooper's vehicle as he approached the collision scene. And he had to change lanes from the inside left, inside westbound lane to the outside westbound lane to get around the cab of the truck because right. he was blocking the road. Yeah. So, I mean, so much for that. So you got eyewitnesses that are testifying that they saw something that cannot possibly happen. And that became the theme of the eyewitnesses. You cannot be an eyewitness to an event that cannot possibly happen. Yeah. You just can't do it. It's like one of the basketball game one play. One of the things that I really liked, and I, I'm not sure, I, I know you broke up the openings and closings, but one of the themes that I really liked was talking about how, you know, uh, that the jury's part of the investigation to figure out what happened in the case. And they, you know, and part of doing an investigation is doing a thorough investigation. And so that means looking at all the evidence. So, you know, including digital evidence, looking at, you know, the road, looking at the vehicles, not just listening to these two eyewitnesses who obviously got it wrong. Uh, and I just really like the way that theme uh theme got put together but uh james i was going to ask you I, I i understand were you involved in the in the cell phone records of the uh defendant driver and and uh can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so again going back to kind of the late involvement in the case you know you know siphoning through all the discovery that's in there and and noticing that back early on in the case these cell phone records were subpoenaed from verizon and of the of defendant Clawson. And what was included in them was not just the bills and uh, call logs that are traditionally listed with the bill, but I saw these Excel spreadsheets in there that didn't have a name. They just had a number designation, which was a file number for, I believe it was the UM lawyer's file number that they uh, associated with their case file. So I click it and I open it up and I'm like, what is this? What is going on here? It's this Excel spreadsheets of call detail record from Verizon, which Come to find out, a call detail record is comes that information is coming from the same billing information that's listed on your phone bill. But what it does is it provides uh, more descriptive information about a phone call, like the tower you're connected to, the side of the tower you're connected to when you make or receive a phone call, the duration of the call, and then what tower and sector you're connected to when that call ends. And so I'm going through this stuff and. And Verizon gives you a cheat sheet to read it, which is beautiful. So you don't have to be an expert to understand what the data is when you're looking at it just from uh, what they give you. But you do have to be an expert to testify about it because it is specialized knowledge. 
Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. So I'm looking at it and we've had this GPS data. And now we have the cell phone data. So now we actually have a comparison information from phone calls because she, Defendant Clawson, had made after midnight on March 29th, 2013, she had made somewhere in the area of about 31 phone calls. Uh, 15 of those were within the time frame of when she would have left. She left a bar, admittedly, admittedly left a bar and began driving eastbound towards Georgia. So we, she didn't know about what time she left. But when you look at the call detail records, you can see when she starts tracking on these towers because she's making these very rapid fire phone calls. They're lasting 31 to 40 seconds which indicates that nobody's answering and they're going to voicemail. She's calling her boyfriend. He's not answering. That's who she's going to see when she's traveling over to, to Georgia. So he's not answering, but she's just hitting, almost like she's hitting redial every time it, it hangs up. But as she's doing that, she's clipping off a new tower. So 
she doesn't have a GPS in her in her car, but she might as well have been because she's making so many calls in, in such a short time frame that she's leaving breadcrumbs for us to follow. So what we did is we took that information and we compared it to the GPS data from our from Price Thornall's GPS unit that he was using in the vehicle and got an expert out of Texas who's a cell phone wizard <laughs> and, yeah, right. and understands more about this stuff than anybody's ever going to, going to digest. And, and while we didn't need his credentials for, for going through some of the stuff he could have gone into where he could have done a drive-by test and done some uh, frequency analysis and all that, we did, all I needed him for was, can you place her at a particular time on this roadway? Cause we knew the road, roadway she was on, but then compare that to the GPS data from the GPS unit and that's that's what we did is just created this comparison and he created this uh demonstrative for us to present to the jury to say when she made this call she's on this tower his gps is back here 23 miles behind where she is and they're just progressing along the same track together she's still equidistant out in front of him the the real kicker is when she when you read these things these call detail records they're associated with the time zone that the tower is located in, right? So she's in central time. Right. And as she crosses the river, she hits a Georgia tower and the time jumps ahead an extra hour. So it's, you have to adjust your times on these uh, call detail records to get the correct sequence when you're dealing with something like this. But she hit a tower in Georgia and then made another call, was on that Georgia tower, went back to Alabama when she ended that phone call. So it showed a westbound movement of her vehicle as he's coming in with, uh, really close to the crash site. So we don't have a phone call from her. I think her last call was about 2.08. The crash happened seconds before 2.10. But you at least had her positioned. Still, his opinion, our, our expert's opinion was just she is more east or out in front of him at all times. He is, is never the opposite. And it was a very, very... Uh, elementary concept to just say that in order to have this collision, like we talked about earlier, he would have to zoom out in front of her and turn around and hit her head on, but there's no evidence of that. Right. And so this was just one more piece of one more box to check. When you talk about these eyewitnesses, that's kind of how we coined our eyewitnesses was the roadway is, is an eyewitness. It sees something. It can't tell you anything yet. I bring somebody in to talk, to talk about it. That was the accident recon. You have the GPS evidence. It's watching something. It's going to tell you a story, but you have to have somebody give it a voice. That's the expert. Same with the cell phone data. And that's all we did because part of the theme from the defense and Jeff and uh, Steve and Devon, y'all have seen this before. Defense will hand you your theme sometimes when they get up and start talking. And that was part of the defense theme was that we were going to bring in these paid experts and they were going to fight the, the eyewitness testimony that couldn't be refuted kind of thing. So we yeah. basically had our four pockets of, of evidence where he's telling the jury, the defense lawyer is telling the jury not to consider the experts because they're paid, they're hired guns. And we are saying, we have these guys, but they're telling you a story about what these what this information says. They're not coming in here making it up. They're basing it off these things, but you have to consider it. And you got to consider the eyewitness. Don't not consider those things. I mean, you're here to do what you said earlier, Steve, about a full investigation. And you have to consider all these factors, but that was to get this cell phone information was gold when you want to try to compare where two vehicles are in relation to one another at any point in time, especially when 
she's making all these calls, which she testified her deposition that she did not make, which was another big just credibility issue for her was, were you using your phone? No, it was dead in the floorboard. And I was like, don't I don't ask you more questions about the cell phone. We'll we'll get her. We'll get it when when it's time to get it. And uh, but it's it was it was very, very critical information about just locking down the the relationship between the two vehicles at any given point in time prior to the collision. But it got and that digital more. footprint that James was able to, to, to extract from that was almost akin to having a surveillance video. Right. A premises case or something like that, where the video itself doesn't speak. You know, even if it's a silent video, you see everything you need to see. It tells the story as long as you can connect the dots you know, between the, the, the points on the GPS and the, and the, the points on the, the cell phone uh, uh, towers that it's pinging off of, it, it tells you enough to know that this vehicle is traveling east and this vehicle is traveling west. And it's a head-on collision involving two vehicles. So on a, on a road that runs east and west. So you have to have one going east and one going west. And in order for their theory to be true, uh, and I, and for Price Thornall to have been farther east of Miss Clawson, he would, uh, I believe it was, was it uh, John Minor, our, our expert GPS guy who, who uh, calculated it was. No, it was Jeff Kidd. Jeff Kidd, sorry. Uh, 500 and almost 600 miles an hour is how fast I would have had to travel in order <laughs> right. to. Uh, that was just east. well. That was just a give her a handshake at the crash site. That wasn't even yeah. to get past her and turn around and come back. It would have been a, a ludicrous, an even more ludicrous speed if it yeah. was to get up there and turn back around. So it just didn't make any sense to to make the to take the position they did on the defense side, uh, given all the information that was presented. Right, right. Yeah, I I will say that in the uh, I I read that part about the um, experts, and it was clear that they were trying to. Uh, you know, denigrate your case for bringing experts in. Uh, I thought it was really an effective use of the uh, of the statute, just reading, you know, basically, here's what the law allows. And sometimes you have these complex issues that need help being described to the jury. And here's what you're supposed to do under the law. And here's what we did. Well, uh, yeah, James, go ahead, Bill. James pulled a real cool little uh, stunt with, about the experts like that, because he says, you know, there's times when you just need experts to get the the data in front of the jury and explain what it means. And he goes and takes the GPS device and puts it in the witness chair. <laughs> and he says, I can't ask this thing any questions and get an answer. Can I, Mr. GPS? You know, and, and, and so I've got to have an expert to download the data and to interpret the data and tell you folks what it means. But the data tells a story and somebody's got to give it some voice to tell the story. And that's why we need the experts. Well, one part of the story that, that ties into what they were telling you right now is that at about 1.43 a.m., uh, both of these, and, and this is uh, Eastern time, okay? This is normalized time on both maps, so you, you don't get confused with the time. But at about 1.43 a.m., uh, there's a time when there's a ping on her uh, cell phone where she's connecting to a tower at Gordon, Alabama. And there's also 
a ping on our GPS where we're connect, connecting to the satellite about uh, two miles northwest of Dothan, Alabama at the AMC Theater, which is a place where everybody on the jury knows because that's where they go to movies. So anyway, the the place where he was was about 23 miles from the Gordon Tower, which was about three miles from the place where the accident occurred. So he's about 26 miles away from the point of impact. And she's about three miles from the point of impact. Okay. So he's got to cover 26 miles in the same time that she covers three miles in order to intercept her and for them to shake hands or wave at each other uh, as they get to the point of impact. Now, this doesn't take into account what all he has to do to get past there, turn around and come back and meet her again and all that. But it does say, as far as Miss Alexander, the, the star eyewitness was concerned, that he had to pass her at a very high rate of speed in order to get there. And when I asked her on her examination, um, if she noticed a Honda Civic pass her at about 600 miles an hour, she said no. <laughs> you know, but that had to happen in order for her story to be straight. You're right. But, but the, I think that this, takes one of those uh, Acme rockets that you strap to the car. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the, the thing is, you were able to pinpoint two points in the road where each of these vehicles were with a fairly high degree of accuracy on both ends and see how far they were from the collision site and what they had to do in order to get there just at the same time. And yeah. it made it ludicrous that, that uh, Price Thornall could possibly drive that distance. And the other side of that whole thing is that the Gordon Tower was about uh, uh, 14 miles from Donaldsonville, Georgia, which was her final destination. And so she just kept driving in the direction she was going instead of stopping and going off the radar for about 15 minutes and turning around and, and going back towards Dothan, Alabama on the wrong side of the road. She would have been speaking with her boyfriend before Price ever got to the place where the accident occurred, if, assuming they were driving just regular highway speeds. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was really clear that her story was not matching up to what really happened um so you know you put all those things together it starts leaking like a sieve and uh uh you know there's only one story that can come out of this thing because if you consider everything like james suggested they should do there's only one way this could happen yeah so basically it sounds like to me as she had been at this bar decides she's going to go see her boyfriend over in georgia can't get hold of him and then decides at some point to turn around and just gets going the wrong way on the I-84. Is I mean that's basically what happened. Sure. Yeah, I think you'd be inviting us to speculate about what <laughs> right. she would what what caused her to turn around, but I would wager to guess it was jilted lover syndrome. That, right. Uh, right. <laughs> and the jury, uh from the look faces of the jury when that was being talked about, you could see some eye rolls and that mm -hmm. you didn't really have to spell it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and I, I should say just for all of our listeners, which uh, hopefully we'll have this on the website, but the demonstrative that you made, you know, basically where you're showing the GPS pinging along the way and then the, the cell phone tower information pinging the other way. I mean, it's just really, really effective for showing, you know, that there's only one way this could happen. And it's, you know, it, it's basically just these plot points put onto a, a Google map, but uh, it just makes it very effective. And, I, I you know, I'm kind of wondering like how, 
the defense tried to stand up and say that that somehow wasn't right. Or did they? It was a tall order. Right, right. <laughs> Ms. Paulson testified that she didn't make those calls. Right, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah I think she, uh, in her calls, well, Steve, the way that the order of proof went up in this case was we had our deposition by video that we played in our case in chief as our number two witness coming out of the box. Uh, and so the jury got to hear this nonsense about the cell phone not being used in our case in chief. And then defendant Clawson gets on the stand during the defendant's case in chief and tries to come up with some story about, Hey, this, the phone, there was, honestly, we, we had a, we had a legal tech from LTS there with us and, you know, they, she couldn't even put it together. What was, what, was, what she was trying to say about uh, the, the phone was 5%, you know, it still connects to her Bluetooth and may do some stuff on its own. It was, it was all these really <laughs> wild con, you know, concepts about the phone was doing this on its own and not making the calls. But uh, at that point, you're just, she was just scrambling for, for any kind of foothold to save herself. But it was, it was painful to watch because I'm kind of a tech geek and, you know, trying to hear it from my perspective is, you know, I'm, I'm basically silently pleading with her to stop talking about it because it's so, it's yeah. so, it's so odd. And, and she didn't know exactly the story she was trying to tell, but she was making it up on the, on the go. What made y'all... That, that's a really good point, James, uh, that, um, again, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out to everybody. Uh, we all know how important, uh, your order of proof is. And uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat, obviously. Um, but you know, we, call, we call it our batting order. Um, and one thing that I've learned over the last few trials that we've tried together is that it's very important to hit as many home runs as you can in the top of the first inning. That's right. Before the other side gets uh, uh, really, I mean, just – your best witnesses don't don't save somebody uh, for the end. Go ahead and move the meter um, uh, with the jury and and uh, calling. Just just to give you an example, our first three witnesses uh, in the li- during the liability phase, it was pretty pretty neat to be able to do this. But we all went back to back to back. I had a witness. Dad had a witness. James had a witness. We just passed the baton. Uh, just back to back to back like that. Okay. Your turn, your turn. Your turn. And it was, it was, uh, it just happened to fall that way. But, um, but uh, our first three witnesses, we introduced uh, Molly Thornall, the, the mother of the deceased Price Thornall uh, to establish that he was coming home from Ole Miss. And that's really, and really just to introduce her to the jury. Uh, she wasn't up there five minutes. Um and she did a great job. And then uh, dad called um, uh, the defendant, Stephanie Clawson, on cross-examination by video to, you know, go ahead and just lay the lay all the falsehoods that she spit out uh, during her deposition testimony. Of course, no direct examined to redirect was allowed. So they didn't get to clean that up. Um, and then followed that up with, James followed that up with John Honor, our, our uh, cell phone expert, to show all the calls she did make, you know. And so it was three for three just right out of the gate. And, um, you know, we hadn't even called Jeff Kidd yet. Right, so, right. 
Um, I just, <clears throat> the one thing that I, I would just pass along to anybody is just don't save your best witnesses for last. Go ahead and get them out there. Yeah. Well, Vaughn, were you going to ask something? Oh, I think I was just going to ask why you why you all had elected to, um, you know, play the video of her um, versus kind of waiting for her to, you know, get on the stand and maybe blow up live. But I think you explained well, the logic behind doing that. Well, we didn't know if she was going to get up. Either. Right. And so right. with all the stuff she had said at her deposition, uh, it would have been really hard to if I was a defense lawyer, I would have not put her up. But I guess yeah. since we did put her up through video, he had to get her up there to try to save a little bit of face. But that was also the reason for doing it was it would have it forced his hand to call her live to put up evidence because we still had the issue of were they because since they didn't have any experts, the defense didn't have any experts, we were worried about stealing clothes as well. Yeah. So right. we had some issues with that. So we knew if we put her up in video, he was gonna have to bring her to smooth over some of those things she had goofed up on the cross. Yeah. So it was more there was some there was some tech that we had to implement there to get to well, get that up there. But right. In addition to that, see, we never asked her about her cell phone records during her deposition for a reason. Uh, so we had John Minor come in behind her to testify about all her cell phone records. So we got the lie out there that she wasn't using the cell phone at all. Right. Because it was dead and in the forward, she didn't have a battery charger. So yeah. all that just came to be so much BS after after Miner starts testifying about the call detail reports and all the activity on the phone and who <laughs> she's calling because she's calling boyfriend. So right. this and is I not just some call out of the blue. And so when she started testifying in her uh, direct examination during the defense case in chief, then I, I crossed her again about the cell phone records. And I said, uh, you know, let me show you the cell phone bill for the, the month of March. And it gives this number right here is the amount that you owe for all these calls that are shown in this bill. Yeah. And let me show you the, the, the bill for the month of April that shows that you paid the entire March phone bill <laughs> for all the phones you made that you say you didn't make. I mean, right. why did you not... Uh, not go through test those <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Why didn't do that? You just paid for phone phone calls that you should have known you didn't make if you really didn't make them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that didn't go over well with the jury as far as she was concerned. And uh, she looked a lot different than she did uh, in her video at trial. She came to trial and, and uh, uh, she looked a lot like uh, Morticia and the Adams family at trial. And she was a lot better. Uh, quaffed and all that when she took her deposition about a year earlier mm, so yeah. uh, uh you know she she just uh i thought we needed to do the deposition because it was a controlled environment it wasn't yeah. it wasn't gonna be any surprises about it and she was gonna say exactly what we told the jury yeah she was gonna say and again, again like james says it forced their hand to call her to try to rebut some of this stuff. And she made a mess out of that by saying she didn't make calls that she paid for. Right. right. Well, and, and I'll just say, you know, we've talked about this before, but it really helps, uh, you know, sort of polarize the issue for the jury. I mean, you know, if you believe her, they're going to win. If you don't believe her, then the plaintiffs are going to win. And, and um, it really, you know, just to play that right there and surrounded by the others, 
just show it shows how you know her story doesn't hold hold up. So it, uh, it's it's okay. very very effective. The one part we didn't tell you is that she had four felony convictions in, right. in Alabama for credit card fraud, and she, the person that was a victim of credit card fraud was her grandfather. Hmm. So it led to yeah, the great line. It, it uh, led to the closing argument that uh, if your granddaddy can't trust you, maybe the jury shouldn't either. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's a lot of granddaddy. It's a lot of you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, so I mean, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to spend too much more time on liability because I, I want to make sure we get enough time to talk about damages because I know you all put a ton of work into it. And I, the first part I, I want to ask, though, is you did make a, a bit of an unusual decision in this case uh, to bifurcate the um, the liability and then the damages section. You know, normally in Georgia, that those would be combined. Uh, what gets bifurcated is the punitive damages. Um, can you talk a little bit about that decision to uh, to, to bifurcate between uh, liability and then damages, and then we'll move on to damages? Well, it wasn't our idea to do it. It was the defense idea to do it. And it actually, it was USAA's idea to do it way back when they were involved in the case. And they filed the motion, and Ms. Clawson's lawyers didn't object to it, and neither did we, because we were pretty sure that we were going to be able to handle liability. And then if you if you took that out of the picture, there wasn't going to be anything to compromise about as far as the damages were concerned because the only issue was going to be what is the full day of this boy's life to himself if he lived. Right. And it takes Klaus and I out of the picture altogether because one of the things we were seriously worried about was the jury feeling real sorry for her because she literally didn't have two nickels to rub together. And you could tell that. And she, you know, she's not come across as a person of any means at all. But we were able to get the judge to instruct the jury during the damages phase that um, how she's going to acquire the money to pay any judgment is irrelevant. And it's not a matter for you to consider, just like it's not a matter for you to consider whether the plaintiffs need the money, what they're going to right. do with it or anything like that. It's, it's, that's not the court's business. The court's business is to find the truth. And it actually is, you know, for your benefit, it actually is a Georgia case that approves the giving of that charge. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. So and she really did us a favor after the liability verdict came back because after that she ghosted and never oh. sat down in the chair for damages at all. So any any sympathy they would have felt for her was immediately gone when she, you know I think the defense lawyer said that we're going to try to get her back in here and never came through on that promise. <laughs> she just totally <laughs> it was in the wind after that, which you can't really blame her. But she um, it it was it, it it immediately eliminated that fear that they were going to feel sorry for. Right. Well, yeah. and, and it completely undermines. I one thing I took from the argument that I, I saw was that the defense were trying to argue to make sure you're fair to the defendant, Miss Clawson. Well, if she doesn't even care enough to sit there and listen to the jury, I don't think that uh, makes that argument very effective. Well, the argument really was that you're not really trying to ask them to be fair to her. You're asking them asking them to be unfair to us. Right. Because what you're trying to do is to is to depreciate the value of this boy's life just so you can share a few dollars off her liability. And right now, this is not about her. This is about him. You right. Know, yeah. You don't need, need to think about, you know, that being fair to her. We're just trying to talk about being fair to him now. So just out of curiosity, because I've never done I've done trials with punitive damages where you have bifurcation for that. But so does the. You know, does the judge tell the jury, you know, kind of what's going on that you're only going to hear about liability or, do, yeah. you know, do you all handle it? Um, the judge does. Both. OK. 
you could do it either way, I'm sure, but in this yeah. case, we just agreed with it. I think it. we started by saying that the case was about price Thornall just as an overarching theme, but then said for this first part of this, we're going to be talking just about the collision and and we, I I coined it internally as the who done it phase. Yeah. Um, and so we focused on the the mechanisms of the crash. And then after we got out of that, it was now we're here to talk about who this who who price Thornall was and and go over the damages part. Gotcha. Cause I just I wasn't sure how much um you know, like when you focus group a case and you hear the questions that the jury's asking that don't really have to do with the <laughs> issues or that you haven't told them for a reason or whatever. So I wasn't I wasn't sure how you kind of head that off. The judge did a good job of explaining all that to him, though. He just said we're going to do this this way. So, yeah, we, we can and focus. I on think I think part of that, Yvonne, comes from us living in the trenches where we think about crazy questions like that. Yeah. Where, <laughs> right. I don't even think it was, it crossed their minds that this is how it's not done. Traditionally. Yeah. Right. I think, yeah, I think they were, I think that once they went through that process, I bet if they go through it again and it's a, and it's liability and damages combined, they go, wait, this is completely different than the last time I did yeah. this. Yeah. Um, That's a good but point. Yeah. It was, I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with folks who just, they're far, this is a foreign concept to them all around. So yeah. I don't think, I don't think they thought, any 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 more about that than we would we we obviously are looking for those pitfalls and trying not to mm-hmm. try not to hurt ourselves and stub our toe and 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 reveal something that maybe we shouldn't reveal but i think that they uh they didn't think anything different james i'm shocked are you suggesting that we might overthink things sometimes <laughs> oh 110 percent. yeah <laughs> right 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 better than underthinking that's that's right I, I, and i will say i mean so with, what james just said i think is a is a an important point because i, I we've talked about it over in, in other shows but like you know there used to be this thought especially when i was a young lawyer you know about you know how much technology do you use in the courtroom whether or not you just use a flip chart you know because you don't want the jury thinking you're coming in there too slick that kind of thing i i think that jurors one first of all they don't really know what to expect in a trial so whatever you do looks normal but second of all i mean especially once you see you know some of the tv shows that are on now i mean i think jurors now expect you to put the work in and and expect there to be you know, some technology and, and, and it does look weird. And I'm not sure what the defense did in this play, this case, but if you come in there and you've got a really organized presentation, that's you know, using technology and then the defense doesn't, it looks a little odd for them not to. Right. Well, it's like, you know, a, a cannon versus a bow. bow right. You know, I mean, yeah. But what, one thing it also does, what, one thing it also does is everybody knows that that costs a lot of money to do that. And that, you know, you must really believe in this case if you spent the money to come in here and do this to teach us what you need to teach us, you know. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think that, and I, I think if you look at, we, we see an awful lot of real trials on TV now that, you know, like this this trial up in Wisconsin where the, the, the guy murdered, um, you know, the murder trial up there. And then we, we saw a lot of the Aubrey uh, trial yeah. down in Brunswick and everything. And you see all the technology being used in the real world in those trials. And so I don't think they think near as much about it as they used to. Um, right. It sure gets it. It sure gets the information out there to them a lot quicker and it gets them out, out there a lot better than we could just by using flip charts and, and trying to draw when you're not too skilled at it, you know, right. not very good at it like me. Uh, right, right. My, my former partner, God bless his soul, took classes and how to draw, and he could draw anything. Oh, that's and good. Make it look really good. And I, I can't even draw a stick figure. 
Well, uh, well, let, let's talk about uh, uh, Price Thornall and uh, and the value of his life, which was the question in damages. And and Riles, I know you uh, took a big role in this part of it, and and especially in uh, in putting on a, a a number of witnesses to come in and talk about Price and what kind of person he uh, uh, he was. Um, we haven't really talked about it yet on the show. Do you want to kind of give us an overview of what uh, who Price was and and what he was like? I, I sure do, and I and I will do so uh, with the caveat that that we didn't have the privilege of knowing Price in life, um, and that's what we told the jury that uh, we brought near thirty witnesses here, twenty nine of the thirty that we put up at trial that, that knew him personally, knew him best, and that they would hear hear from uh, to um, you know to put meat on the bone. Uh, it, uh, to turn a phrase, I mean, um, you know, we we wanted to tell his story, but we weren't the ones that needed to tell it. It needed to be told by the people who knew him best. Um, and uh, so just, um, you know, over the course of uh, several years, I'm spending time with his uh, friends and family, and he was uh, blessed with a very large family, very large extended family. Um, all many of whom uh, lived in and around Tallahassee, Florida, um, and uh, you know Price grew up in a very loving household with a very loving family who who doted on him as the baby of the family. So much so that that if he were anybody else, he might have turned out spoiled, rotten. But it kind of had the opposite effect on him. That's all he knew uh, was to love people that much uh, and that big and, and to, to do that with everybody, not just people in your immediate family and not just people that you like the most. Um, and that's how he went through life. And uh, he obviously had some innate traits, um, just uh, very outgoing and, and never met a stranger type of personality. Uh, he had, uh, he was an Eagle Scout. Uh, uh, one of the things that his, his parents required of him was that he had to uh, get his Eagle Scout uh, before he could get his driver's license. Uh, and that was one of the things that his dad uh, instilled in him uh, from a, from birth. His dad, uh, Colonel Mike Thornall is a, a retired full bird Air Force Colonel, as was his grand, his paternal grandfather, who also testified. And so he was raised, um, even though they doted on him, he was raised in a household that expected uh, him to be a very responsible, uh, well-mannered young man uh, with that sort of military discipline. Um, and, you know, by the age of Eight, he knew how to drive a boat. Uh, and, you know, he had his boating license by the time he was 12 or 13. He got pulled over a couple of times in the middle of, uh, in, in, out in the water, out in the ocean, in the Gulf, by the, the, the uh, DN, I guess it's DNR. I don't know what it was down there, but um, because he looked so young, not because he was doing anything wrong. And they said, well, you know, son, what are you doing out here? And he flashed his back, you know, his license. There's so, like, okay, have a good day, you know. Uh, but 
that's just kind of the overachiever that he was. Um, he was a um, very entrepreneurial kid. He uh, started his own lawn care business uh, when he was 16. Uh, and matter of fact, I think he, I think he started it before he was 16 because I think his his mom and dad uh, drove him around to his uh, to his yards uh, that he had. Um, the first little little while uh, he was cutting grass, but he did that all the way up until he moved to college, and it the business actually continued after he left. Uh, he passed it down to to some some uh, friends and classmates that had been working with him, and I mean he had he didn't just do it in Tallahassee. He had he had branches of the business in uh, down at the beach, down at St. Teresa, where uh, his family. Uh, it's a cool story. His his grandparents and his uh, um, their brothers and their their brothers and sisters um, of that generation when they came back from World War II, uh, there was cheap land down on beachfront property that you know little cottages uh, that they could with the GI Bill everything you know it was just available um, and it's those houses are all next door to each other. And they've kept them in the family. And so they fish all, down there all the time. So, you know, very close to Tallahassee. And so they spent a lot of family time with their extended uh, aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, and so many of them testify. So, Riles, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I've got to ask you this because, you know, you're, the way you presented damages was obviously very successful. But the first thing I thought of when I saw it was, I've had judges put pressure on me about like having four or five damages witnesses about moving it along or taking too much time. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, number one, did y'all get any of that? And number two, um, you know, how did you, how did you keep it punchy? Cause it, you know, he's clearly somebody that the jury cared about and wanted to do right by him. Um, but you do have to think about that, especially when sure. you're separating things out and you're not mixing, you know, liability witnesses in is, is how did you manage? Cause that's a ton of witnesses and clearly it, it worked and you did it well, but I'm really interested in that. Well, for one thing, uh, I know it seemed like a lot, but that list that list started at 94 people. That's how good this kid was. They were lined up out the door and around the corner to testify. For him. At his funeral, he had only been at Ole Miss for six months, seven, eight months. No less than three full charter buses of his friends drove from Oxford, Mississippi, with nowhere to stay, mind you, drove all the way down to Tallahassee, for the funeral. Now they put up when they got their family, the family made sure they had places to stay. They stayed with friends and, you know, local friends and family, but that just goes to show you what kind of kid this was that he made an impact on that many people in such a short time. And, and he did that in every aspect of his life. But uh, so cutting it down, <laughs> we did cut it. Right. 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 Cut it way down. And, and we, we made sure to tell the jury uh, every chance we got that, um, you know, that this is not all of them that we, we, we did that to, um, because your time is valuable too. That was a, that was kind of a theme that we hit on a lot was that time is valuable, you know, and his time was valuable. His life was valuable. And mm -hmm. as is yours, you know, as is everyone's, you know, you know, the way you, um, and, uh, we respect that. 
Uh, and, you know, basically the, the subliminal message being, you know, we hope you will in the end respect his, the time, the value of his time. The value mm-hmm. of- Ra- Raz, can I ask you a question <clears throat> during voir dire and jury selection? Did you, because you would have been doing that before the liability phase, did you explain, I guess, that after the liability phase was over, should the jury find in your favor, then there was going to be another section where they hear damages and that they're going to hear from a a lot of witnesses. And, you you know, you're not trying to be repetitive or not trying to overwhelm them, but you want to make sure that they know, you know, who Price was and and can, you know, accurately value his life. I mean, how how did you, I guess what I'm asking is how you handle that during jury selection. You know, I don't know that we actually I, I we downplayed it. Okay. We, we downplayed it because, yeah, really, we, we had a motion in limine that had been made by the defense not to get into uh, any damages issues during jury selection, which is now they did let us get into uh, uh, big verdicts and, and things like that. We, we got into that and we got into uh, the things that make your life valuable. Uh, and I'll talk to you in a minute about that. But as far as the question you asked, Riles, we didn't really get into that much at all uh, because the judge told them the only thing they were going to be considering to begin with was the liability. Okay. Well, and, and, and see, and, and like one of the things that uh, kind of kept the ball moving, um, I don't know that it, we wound up taking really any more time than if we had called half that many is that, uh, First of all, the vast majority of them were by video deposition. So we were able to uh, revise, trim those. And you're not going to draw hardly any, if any, uh, you know, objections uh, during those depositions. So you can, you don't have to really designate. You, you can, you can play what you want to play. Right. Well, you know, it was a marathon taking those depositions. I took 25 depositions in three days wow. uh, on the hour, every hour. And so I had, I had only allotted one hour of time, really less than that, uh, for each witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had spent a lot of time with every single one of them. Um, I'd spent a lot of time with several of them that wound up we wound up not not even taking their depositions. We had to kind of uh, we probably probably had forty something teed up, you know, to go if we wanted them. Um, but we had to draw the line somewhere, and um, so we decided to. Uh, only call the, you know, with COVID and everything else, you had to, those were considerations. You didn't need a, a bunch of people in the courtroom. Um, so we limited the, um, just our arbitrary line. We, we uh, decided to, to limit our, our live friends and family witnesses to just uh, immediate family. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Colonel and, and Mrs. Thornall uh, were the plaintiffs. They were there. Um, throughout the trial, but uh, Price's older brother and older sister um, testified live as well. Uh, but all the rest were were uh, by video, and we had it trimmed down to, you know, 20, 20 25 minutes apiece. You're playing three an hour, and you're you're staying on on point. And, and it took two days to put up. Right. Okay. So and I think – I think – I think Yvonne, to, to, to add to the, the question you asked about the judge and letting it, you know, without moving, doing the moving along, the, the rapid fire of the witnesses for one. But this case, we didn't talk much about it. We don't really need to go into it much. But the procedural backstory of this case took so long to get it to trial that 
the judge was almost just as accommodating as he could be to have, have right. it done and get out of the, get it done. We had yeah. two weeks specially set. It was, we, because we had these videos of these witnesses, we knew the times they were going to last. We knew we could take, we knew when we could take breaks. We knew when we'd break for lunch. We knew when we'd round out the day. And it was just two days of those people. And then we had the economist and that was, it, we being able to hand him a plan of how we were going to approach damages, knowing that, there wasn't going to be much, if any, objections uh, to the testimony. We could just plow through very, very quickly, even considering the mass number yeah. of people we were bringing. But the judge knew how long it was going to take. And mm-hmm. he knew we were keeping things moving and on track. And one of the things we planned about these depositions in the beginning before they were taken was avoid the cumulative. Right. What we want to do is it's one thing for you to tell us about price. Well, one thing we really need you to do, the main thing, is tell us your best two or three price stories. Right. To mm-hmm. illustrate the finer points of Price's life and what it made to him. And so you've got these people, and you can get those kind of little vignettes of his life in there, but you don't have to take a forever time to do it, and you can just move it like bing, 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 bing. It's like Ross said, you, you know, you push and play on the on – the, uh, so I, I have one question about this, and I was wondering if the defense would rethink their strategy here. But all right, so are we talking about basically two days worth of testimony where the defense is just sitting there silently? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and really, even even during the case in chief, it was like that, too, because, again, the order of witnesses, the batting order mattered because they weren't going to cro- cross Molly Thornall. Okay, they weren't. They couldn't cross. If they couldn't redirect uh, Miss Miss Clawson uh, when we called her on cross, and John Miner, uh, um, James asked him to briefly uh, uh, state his credentials for the jury, and two hours later he came up. For- <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, so something you, something you learn in every trial, right? The <laughs> yeah. expert that can give give you the bona fides, it'd take two hours to give you their bona fides. I'd say is qualified, um, right? Right. But the jury thought the guy was qualified too. But the way we structured the damage issue, and it's the way we do with all the uh, wrongful death cases we try, it starts in order. Okay, you you've got to get the jury to buy into what you're trying to sell, and you're trying to sell the intangible value of human life more so mm-hmm. than you are the economic value of human life, because economic value is just a tiny little bit of the overall component. And if people focus too much on that, you wind up getting small verdicts and everything. But what what you do is like, and we've we've uh, done this in focus groups, and we've done it in. Uh, quite a number of jury trials too and it's always worked out real well we asked the juries like juror number one can can you tell me the three things that are most important in adding value to your life and you get them to say faith family and friends you need an f trilogy faith family family and friends and and the reason you need a trilogy i call it the miscongeniality um um, syndrome right there because world peace, world peace, world peace. Everybody says mm-hmm. world peace at the end of their question. So once you get two, three, or four of the jurors to tell you that they believe that it's faith, family, and friends that add value to their life, and that's the three most important things, you don't have to ask them all. You just said, can I see the hands of uh, all the rest of you that believe that faith, family, and friends are the three most important things that add value to your lives too? And everybody 
boom, you know, it goes up like that. So now you've got the jury that you can tell in the closing that uh, every one of you answered that question, yes. Those are the three most important things. And what we've shown you with these 25 or 29 witnesses right here about Price, we've shown you how well he checked off every one of those boxes. He had a rich life. And, you know, and what I told him, I said, you know, by his works, you will know him. Yeah. So, well, and he, you know, the, the, the biggest thing was that he was not, it was to remind them that, you know, he wasn't here to tell you how valuable his life was. We brought you the folks who knew him best in order to tell you how much he valued his own life from their perspective. You know, it's, it's a reciprocal relationship, a friendship, you know, and it's, a, it's like a mirror image. And, you know, you, you have to look at it from the other end of the telescope, as David Boone used to say. And, you know, it's a, uh, I had someone tell me one time that, I want to, before I got married, that a relationship is not 50-50. You don't get 50 and then wait, you know, wait for the other, other person to give the other 50. Uh, it's 100 and 100. You have 100% of yourself to give, and so do they. And, and uh, Bryce gave 100%. I mean, he, he really did. And, and uh, whether he got it back in return, but, but everybody that testified in this trial and so many that, that would have, uh, you know, valued – their relationship with him. And it was obvious that he valued that too. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, I, I kind of, uh, I looked up when we were preparing for trial, I happened to be watching uh, the movie Amistad uh, with uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins and uh, Morgan Freeman, Matthew McConaughey and Anthony Hopkins in that movie plays uh, John Quincy Adams, after he was president, when he was actually serving in the House of Representatives, and so in late in life, uh, and uh, when they were approaching him about uh, uh, retaining him to to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, that famous case, uh, you know, he, it finally kind of piqued his interest, and he said, you know, these Africans, you know. What are their story? What's their story? And the, the Morgan Freeman's uh, abolitionist character said, oh, well, they're from West Africa. You know, and uh, he said, that's not their story. That's where they're from. You know, uh, if, if I were to sum you up as, you know, he said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Georgia. He said, well, if I just said, you're from, you know, if your story is you're a Georgian, is that, does that sum you up? Uh, no, you're a, you're an ex-slave who has overcome, you know, many adversities to, to rise up in the world and, and make something of yourself. And, uh, there's a lot more to your story than that. And so, uh, it just, it hit me that just like those Africans and, and, in Amistad who didn't speak English and couldn't speak for themselves, Price was not able to speak for himself uh, at this trial, and we had to elicit his story from those who who knew him him best, and they they did an outstanding job. They were incredible. Anyone from his ninety one year old grandfather, um, who 
I could have listened to him all day, um, uh, to his boy, to his, uh, scout master, uh, to his fraternity brothers who have named their children after him. Uh, multiple babies have been named after Price Thornall. Um, and, uh, I've still got, um, this, uh, rubber bracelet on, uh, from trial that, uh, just to show you how much he was respected, um, an opposing lacrosse team, not even his own team, uh, had these made. And they're all over Tallahassee still to this day. Um, uh, you know, it, people run into people all the time that they don't know. They don't know the person wearing it, and they're both wearing the same bracelet, you know. Um, and he touched a lot of lives. He um, he started a uh, his Eagle Scout project. He started a, a turkey giveaway at Thanksgiving and gave away, you know, a couple hundred turkeys. Well, today, over 2,000 turkeys are given away. Yeah. In, in the same project. And well, it, it's like the, the, the number of witnesses, the little vignettes. I mean, uh, one of them was his brother, and his brother told the jury about how he got real mad with him one day because he was late getting to the boat when we go fishing and he just didn't get there on time and he just really lit into him when he got there and said where have you been he says well there was this fellow that stopped on the side of the road because he had a flat tire and i stopped and helped him change it yeah and his, brother said, his brother said i, I felt about this I big about after you know big. crawling him about it but you know, one thing I'll, I'll say steve is that that and I know that everybody listening to this podcast is this is preaching to the choir, but uh, these stories that we uh, elicited from these witnesses, uh, you have to spend time with your witnesses. You yes. can't call them before trial and say, "Hey, would you like to testify on behalf of your friend that's no longer here?" They would probably say yes, but they're not going to say the things you need them to say. Because you haven't, A, you haven't built the trust with them. Okay, those are personal uh, stories that you kind of have your own personal vault, you know, that uh, you save those for yourself. Um, there's a um, Deuteronomy, you know, it, uh, God's secrets are his. Well, you, you have some of your own, you know, uh, personal stories that you just don't share with the rest of the world. You know, they're yours and uh, they're precious to you. And, um, you know, what I had to, to uh, impressed upon a lot of these witnesses, even though he was an easy guy to talk about, is that if you don't say it now, they'll never know it. Right. Uh, this is the one shot you've got. Uh, if you could tell the jury three things about him, not not characteristics, not traits, I, I could list those traits off about a lot of different people. Tell tell three stories that come to mind that that. Uh, personify those traits, you know, that, that are unique to him. And they will understand, the jury will understand that he embodies those traits. Yeah. I mean, one, you have to start early enough where they, they, you get the gears turning. Again, a lot of time has passed um, and their memories are in there, but you've got to, you got to build the trust and you got to spend the time uh, to get them. You got to, you got to uh, prime the well. One woman uh, who had a daughter that was having some problems and everything uh, told the jury about how Price saved her daughter's life because he took the time to be with her and kind of help her through some really bad times in her life. 
Then another one told a story about how uh, in his long uh, care service, uh, he found out that one of the ladies that uh, he was cutting a lawn for uh, didn't was having some money problems and everything. So he started cutting her grass for free and all that. And then the, the one story I think that resonated with the jury because there were 10 blacks and two whites on the jury is one of the young ladies that uh, testified uh, had invited a young black female friend to go to the beach house with her. And she was going to be the only black uh, young lady there at the beach house. And uh, she was really worried that she was not going to feel welcome and she was going to feel uh, odd about being down there. And she told the jury how Price just, you know, took her into his care and showed her a really good time and all that. She just, you know, left there with a big smile on her face, really enjoyed herself because Price took the, the time to uh, make her welcome. Yeah. You know, stories like that. You yeah. can't make those up, you know, and, and when you get you, you can tell a lot about what someone values by looking at what they spend their time and their money on. Okay. And and Price spent his time and invested in people and relationships. And and he was an old soul. He did it with his 91-year-old granddad's war buddies. Okay. And and uh uh Air Force buddies. He he did it with young kids younger than him who came behind him in in you know uh Boy Scouts and and uh Eagle Scouts. Uh he just could blend in with anybody and he was a, a very it's kind of the common denominator. He he united a lot of brought a lot of people together. He really enjoyed that. That's what he took value in. Um and uh, made his life worth living. Um, and so it was, again, a very easy person to talk about it, but it made it that much more of a tragic loss. Um, and he was, he was sort of the life of the party. You know, right. his, his thing was, let's have some fun. That was one of his uh, best sayings. And so um, we played his, uh, we kind of got two bites of the apple because, um, and I, I, would, I would recommend this to anybody if you have a way of doing something like this. But our last witness was, I said, don't save your best witness for last. But at that point, it, it, it damages, I, I thought that his mother uh, deserved, you know, to have that, uh, that last uh, uh, grand finale, if you will. Um, but at the end of her testimony, uh, we played... A, a video, a, a, a photo slideshow that was set to music that played at his funeral. That was probably um, it was a couple of songs worth, so it's probably six or seven minutes long. Uh, but it, I mean, it showed him from birth to you know a student at Ole Miss and uh, all throughout his life. And there wasn't a you know there wasn't a photo on there that, and it was a lot of them that. The kid didn't have a smile from ear to ear, you know. Right, right. Life, and mm -hmm. you didn't have to say anything. That kind of spoke uh, for itself, and it was, it was kind of like we we talk, we considered playing that during closing argument because it was it. I, I really wanted to do that because I wanted to say, look, I told you at the beginning, you don't, you know. I, I'm not going to tell you 
who Price was because I, I didn't have the pleasure and the privilege of knowing him. So, you know, I'm going to let the folks who knew him best do that. And, and that would have segued into a closing argument where you, I'm going to sit down now and let you see for yourself just who Price was, you know? And, yeah. but we were worried that, uh, you know, that it, we might've drawn an objection that, you know, it, it hadn't been played in evidence yet or, um, you know, something like that. And even though it just, it wasn't worth the risk. So we played it at the end of, uh, of Molly Thornall's, uh, testimony and closed the evidence that way. And so it was kind of like a, we almost got another closing. Yeah. So Bill, I wanted, uh, <clears throat> to make sure you talk about, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about how you pr- prove up sort of the economic, uh, portion of the damages, but when you're talking about the inv- inti- intangible value of life, uh, you spoke to me earlier about a, a concept that you had, which was the least amount of money for the least amount of time. Will you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I think what you have to do to weave yourself into that is you, you got to find what it means to, to take somebody's life. And one of the best statements of that I've ever heard is from a Clint Eastwood movie uh, named Unforgiven. And this old gunfighter, William Money, says, when you kill a man, you take everything he's got and everything he ever will have. And so, you know, with with Price, with, with Price, uh, I told him that I'm going to help you assess the intangible value of Price's life to himself because his life was spent giving value to the lives of others. He was just a selfless person. And that's what brought him joy. Now, then... I told them that I that I know the experience of getting to know Price through our work on his case had had a positive influence on me and on Riles and on James, and I hope it had had a positive influence on the lives of everybody that had heard Price's story, and that you will carry the memory of this remarkable young man with you and, and think of him every time you see Price in a ray of sunshine peeking through the clouds saying, let's have some fun. And and I said, what is life like that worth? It, and let me, let me pull this up just a second. This is the formula right here. It's the least amount of money for the least amount of time. And I'm going to have to tell you that I did not come up with this myself. I'm not that brilliant or that suave, but a real good friend of mine named Richard Denny which you may know, um, mm-hmm. he, yep. he told me this, and he was kind enough to say he didn't come up with it either. Somebody, he borrowed it from somebody else. So uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So anyway, you got to tell the jury that, you know, when we think about valuing life, valuing the intangible life of just being able to get up in the morning and do what you want to do and walk around and, you know, see the, the plants and the trees and everything that goes along with just, you know, having a nice life and all that. Uh, the intangible value of everybody's life, every person's life, ought to be at least a penny for each second of life. 
Think about how much people are willing to pay for medical care to save their lives. It costs more than one penny per second to stay in a hospital. It costs way more than one penny a second to visit the ER when you just have some acute injury that needs to be treated. Go try it sometime and see how much it costs. Uh, and then the calculation of the thing is uh, uh, it's 60 cents a minute. It's 36 dollars an hour, $864 a day, 315360 dollars a year. And in Price's case, because we were able to show that not only did his grandfather live to be 71 years old, but his grandmother was 80, I mean, he, he lived to be 91 years old, that's 21, 71 years older than Price, the time Price died. Um, and his grandmother was 89 years old, we're able to show that his family is, has longevity. They live longer than a lot of people do on average. So we, talk, we told the jury that 71 years of life at $315,360 a year is $22,405,560. And that's what they awarded for the intangible value of his life. Okay. And, but the important thing is, is you've got to anchor that by these numbers sound real big in the abstract, but they don't sound real big when you when you compare them to what it costs to stay alive. You know, and you've got to give them something to anchor that thought on. And, and when they're thinking about it like that, it's not that big a deal. And remember, when you're trying cases in a rural area and you're dealing with people that don't make an awful lot of money and you don't, you know, they don't have an awful lot of wealth or anything like that, they have their their life, their health, and their happiness and their friends and their family and their faith. And those are the things that make life valuable to them. And uh, a penny a second is not much to ask from a person who's taken that from them. And so bottom line on the whole thing, we kind of closed out like this. Uh, hold on a second. Is that I'm asking you to do your best to let your verdict speak the truth and be an epitaph for Price Thornall. Do full justice to him because half just half half justice is part injustice. Uh, tell Mike and Molly Thornall how very very valuable you understand Price's life was, and he truly was one of a kind. And that was where we closed up. And. And the rest of it is just history. The, the jury was, took 20 minutes for, to reach the $26 million verdict. And Early County is a small rural county. It has about 10,000 people in, in it, and about 5,000 people live in the city of Blake. Uh, and I guess the, the point of this whole thing is if you've got a good case, you can get a good verdict anywhere because people want to do the right thing. You just have to show them what it is and show them how to do it. Yeah. Well, you know, one story I wanted to make sure you got a chance to tell Bill is, <clears throat> or at least what I read was um, when you were talking to the jury about whether or not everybody works to the age of 68 or 65, will you tell them uh, what you asked the jury to do at that point? Yeah, this was fun. Um, the defense counsel had made a comment that, you know, Everybody is going to stop working at 68 or, or by 68 or something like that. That's just what it is. Everybody quits working. 
And so it got to be my turn. And I said, you know, I would like for y'all to turn around and because the jury was in the gallery looking out toward the judge's bench and the judge was behind us. We were looking to the jury. So the COVID uh, set up was, was a kind of a weird way to try a case from what we're all used to. But we got, we got used to it pretty quickly. And so I'd, I'd, I'd like you to turn around and look behind you and look on the, the rear wall and count three pictures from your right backwards, three pictures. I said, that gentleman on the wall right there, that's my father. He was Superior Court Judge here and Chief Superior Court Judge for a long time. He didn't re retire at 68. He was 74 years old when he retired, and the only reason he did it is because under Georgia law, he would have lost his retirement benefits if he didn't stay on until his 75th birthday. So what he did was he retired as, a, as, as an elected judge, and very first thing he did after that is he qualified to be a senior judge, and he kept right on doing what he was doing for the next four years until he passed away. So, uh, you know, that, that was just a story that, that just uh, came out of nowhere, really. It just uh, it was something that popped up and it sounded like a good illustration to make the point that everybody doesn't quit working when they're 65 or 68. And, some people, you know, do it because they like being of service to others, and Price yeah. was one of those people. So, the uh, and we've been taking a lot of your time, and we really appreciate. It. I did want to just give you a chance to talk about. So, th this uh, is uh, uninsured motorist coverage under Florida law. I think you said there was about four hundred thousand in uninsured motorist coverage. And the, obviously, the verdict is twenty six point one million. What is the status of Florida law when it comes to uh, not paying a, a UM claim? Well, under Florida law, a UM claim is first party insurance claim. So it's uh, just like making a claim on your medical insurance or something like that. It's a it's a benefit that goes directly to you, and it's not like Georgia's insurance. It's sort of something that. Uh, uh, spins off of uh, a third party's liability to you. Uh, Florida is, is the obligation of your UM insurer to protect you from any injury because you got into an accident with an underinsured motorist or an uninsured motorist. And so Florida has a different bad faith standard than Georgia does. And I've, I've already told you that they wrote a number of letters uh, telling everybody making claims against the Dornalls that, uh, uh, that it wasn't Price Thornall's fault, it was Miss Claus's fault. They wrote letters to the Thornalls telling them that. Uh, when when Miss Clausen's lawyers and insurance company tendered their policy limits uh, to try to settle with us for a limited release, under Florida UM law, uh, they, USAA had to be notified of that, and they have an opportunity to object to it if they want to object to it and preserve their right of subrogation against her. Now, bear in mind, the whole position they're taking in this trial when, they, when they're a party to the case after they appeared in their own name is that it wasn't Ms. Clausen's fault. She didn't do anything wrong. She was driving on the right side of the road and Bryce Thornall was driving on the wrong side of the road. So what do they do? They, they object to her settling, her insurance company settling for her and getting her out of this mess. Uh, for her policy limits of $25,000 because they want to preserve their subrogation claim. And they put that in a letter, okay? Now, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if, if you're telling the court 
that it's not her fault in the first place, that it's Price Thornall's fault, then you ought to know that you don't have a segregation claim against her because if, if it's not her fault, uh, you know, she's a victim of the whole thing herself and she's not the person that caused the problem, you know. So it, it's just completely backwards from uh, uh, the position they're taking with Price Thornall. Uh, so uh, we are in the process of uh, uh, pursuing a bad faith claim against uh, USAA in Florida under the Florida bad faith statute. And the measure of damages in the Florida bad faith statute is totally different than it is in Georgia. Georgia's measure is uh, 25% of the amount owed, which would be another $100,000. In Florida's bad faith statute, the measure of damages is the entire amount of the judgment against the uh, uninsured motorists or underinsured motorists. In this case, $26,140,000 and change plus post-judgment interest plus another thing they award is procurement costs, which are your attorney's fees and they value it under uh, your contingent fee contract. If that's what the obligation of the plaintiff to pay you is going to be. Um, if, if you have a different arrangement, then they'll value it on, based on the arrangement that you have. But if you can show that the uh, that your client is going to have to pay you according to the contingent fee contract, then that's the damages that you're entitled to, that they're entitled to recover. And then they're also entitled to recover the attorney's fees for prosecuting the uh, bad faith claim against their insurer. So, you know, it jacks the stakes up on it, and uh, right. uh, it, so it's considerably. Uh, uh, uncomfortable for them to go through all that. So I don't know exactly what they're going to do. They've reached out to us to talk to us about it. To uh, uh, they, they want to try to mediate it, but uh, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't said no, but we haven't said yes because we uh, you know, haven't had an offer made so far that tells us that they are uh, genuinely interested in resolving it at a level that we'd be willing to do it. And I don't really want to waste our time with it if, if they're not interested in, in you know, appreciating the situation they've gotten themselves into and trying to do something to extricate themselves from it. Right, right. Because, you know, we, we, uh, we're waiting on here from them about that. But yeah, uh, the, the, it, the notice of appeal should have been filed on Thursday of last week if there was going to be an appeal and none was filed by the uninsured motorist. And so, the judgment has gone final, and I confirmed that with the clerk's office this afternoon. Uh, I want to give it a couple of days to be sure it didn't come rolling in, uh, but it, it's a final judgment now with, with no appeal rights or anything. So, Congratulations. That's fantastic. So we are going to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, Bill, Riles, and James, this has really been just a great uh uh, talking with with so many uh, uh, good points for trial. Um, <clears throat> I want to remind everybody we've been talking about the Thornall versus Clawson case, which was tried in November 2021 in Early County and resulted in a $26,141,628 verdict. Uh, and if you want to uh, look up uh, Bill Riles or James, uh, you can go to stonelaw.com. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your time. This has been really instructive and and just a, a, a really great uh, result, you guys. Well, thank you. For Thanks having for having us. us Thanks for having us. I always like talking with you guys, talking talking trials and law with you guys. This right, right. Long yeah. time to get there. Uh, over five 
five judges and five trial continuances and you know it took it was a long two years worth of two years worth of covid yeah really <laughs> COVID. it was great work fantastic work and uh, and uh, good luck in uh, in florida and uh you know uh, again just really really tremendous work ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.